This is In Another World is Possible audio podcast. This is part three of Towards the Destruction of Schooling, written anonymously, stolen from the Anarchist Library. Chapter three. Theories of Schooling. This is a quote from Diogenes of Sinope. Why not whip the teacher when the student misbehaves? Schooling is seen as a good thing. Those who are uneducated are seen as lacking something essential to being fully functioning, fully human. From Plato to Comenius to Kant, humanity is something that is imposed upon the young. Even Paolo Freire, the favorite of leftists, believes in a, quote, humanizing pedagogy, presumably one that makes people more fully human. We need to spend less money on the military. More money on schools, say the progressives. Their complete identification, quote, we, with the nation-state is utterly pathetic. Quote, humanitarianism has saturated the left and the right. Everyone is working hard, oppressing themselves all for a better humanity, a better future. Like George Bush, the progressives don't want us to leave a single child behind. In Hebrew... There is one word for both education and chastisement. The powerful men of the ancient world were rather clear about what schooling entailed. Today, it is of the utmost importance to conceal the role of schooling in society. Submission to authority is always the goal of schooling, the power wielded by authorities, the power to reward and punish, to habituate and the individual to desired patterns of thought and action works to integrate the individual into a hierarchical social order. Nineteenth-century prison reformers and progressive school reformers were working to make this integrating function more efficient and more total in its effects. Both groups were humanitarians because they sought to make the individual better adapted, obviously doing her a great service, to a new set of social conditions. Society had to be changed into a different form. Reformed. Society is the main actor, and individuals merely respond. <clears throat> to those who haven't picked up on this clever phrasing, <clears throat> quote, society can be understood as those who have the power to make administrative and legislative decisions. Individuals only act as a part of, quote, society to the extent that they submit to existent social conditions and possibly try to influence those who hold positions of power. As John Dewey put it, quote, through education, society can formulate its own purposes, can organize its own means and resources, and thus shape itself with definiteness and economy in the direction in which it wishes to move, unquote. At first glance, Dewey seems to be saying that education can determine the direction in which society goes. But in fact, he says that society shapes itself through education. So education is really not determining anything. In other words, schooling is a technique that society uses. One cannot fault him for such truthfulness. Durkheim agreed that education is, quote, only the image and reflection of society. It imitates and it reproduces the latter in abbreviated forms. It does not create it. End quote. <clears throat> Educators respond to changes in society 
and make sure their schooling produces the necessary products. In a Harvard lecture of the 1920s, George S. Counts said the following, quote, This is not a place to evaluate industrial civilization. Education must come to terms with industrial, industrial civilization and discover its tasks in the new age. End quote. Educators work within institutional confines, within the confines of their social roles as authorities and slaves, just like the Greek pedagogues of the powers that be. Since most educators believe unquestioningly that schools serve a positive function in society, all of their theories of schooling and ideals for reform are likely to reinforce the basic assumption that schools are a good thing. Modern theories of schooling are based on a social ideal of progress. This is basically a conservative ideal in the sense that technological change tends to be irreversible and reform tends to build upon itself by and large keeping institutional structures and social relations intact. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Schools have been steadily expanding progress and they've been able to reform by accretion. The technical basis of modern industry may be revolutionary in the Marxist sense of bringing us closer to revolution within a linear model of historical progress, but is this revolutionary at all? Marx himself praised the essentially, quote, dangerous character of, end quote, of, rev of revolutionists such as, quote, steam, electricity, and the self-acting mule, end quote. Attributing such a character to technology is clearly an oversight, more or less incompatible with any re revolutionary theory based on the need for an insurrectional rapture with our technological society. Marx's oversight stems from his failure to adequately identify the relationship between the productive apparatus and the capitalist system that produces it, and to fully realize, recognize capital's domesticating function. The writings of Jacques Kamat and Freddie Perlman are excellent in expanding upon these themes. In many ways, resistance to the proliferation of the factory system parallels the resistance to compulsory schooling. When a definite loss of autonomy mate was seen as a new and threatening imposition, Radical acts of resistance and sabotage were not uncommon. The industrial system, along with puritanical morality, served to domesticate the exploited, allowing for resistance to be more easily recuperated through institutional channels, such as union bargaining and political reformism. What are considered factory virtues are virtually the same thing as school virtues. Discontents who have internalized these virtues aim at tinkering with the repressive apparatus, not destroying it. Modern theories of schooling can be said to begin with Rousseau. Rousseau considered civilization some form of mistake. He did not oppose it, but he did not oppose it. In his view, society was the source of all evil. He did not, however, see the teacher as part of this evil, and consequently, gave teachers invaluable advice about how to exercise their supposedly righteous control over their pupils. 
Pope. He began then by studying your pupils more thoroughly, for it is very certain that you do not know them, he wrote. Rousseau gave following advice in regard to the way teachers should control their students. Quote, Let him, the student, believe that he is always in control, though it is always you, the teacher, who really controls. There is no subjugation, so subjection so perfect as that which keeps the appearance of freedom. This statement describes much of the philosophy of modern schooling. The institutionalized authority of the teacher is a given. The question is how the teacher can make best use of this authority. Rousseau give, gave an excellent answer. To think that this somehow encourages the freedom and independence of the student is reasonable as long as the, that freedom and independence is exercised within the boundaries set by the authorities. As B.F. Skinner said provingly, Rousseau, quote, did not fear the power of positive reinforcement. B.F. Skinner was an influential behaviorist psychologist of the mid-20th century. His overriding interest was in the control and modification of human behavior, a practice he believed could solve the world's problems, if only everyone could value efficiency over freedom. B.F. Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity is a work of profound scientific insight, but total crap compared to Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Skinner feels that what people call autonomy is an illusion since no behavior is uncaused. He assumes that autonomy refers to the existence of causes of behavior and not the nature of those causes. The nature of the causes of human behavior is contingent upon social relations, which Skinner doesn't want to get into. The application of his science is allowed free reign only when refined social rules separate the controllers from the controlled, the managers from the managed. <clears throat> and since the application of Skinner's science of human behavior is his top priority, <clears throat> institutionalized authority and its relationship to scientific advancement must remain unquestioned. Skinner sees any questioning of the desirability of scientific advancement as taking, quote, a stubborn position of not knowing and valuing ignorance for its own sake. So, anyone who abandons scientific thinking is doing so, quote, for its own sake, whereas the enlightened specialist obviously has a multiplicity of valid reasons for their practice. Skinner's agenda is made somewhat clearer in Reflections on Behaviorism and Society, where he bemoans the, quote, damaging influence of, quote, non-contingent reinforcers, or things that come to us for free. Such things do not allow the control of people by people to realize its full potentiality. So, a gift economy is bad. And a capitalist economy is good, because money is, quote, possibly the greatest of all conditioned reinforcers. As our social environment becomes increasingly complex, more control must be exercised over the individual growing up. Quote, programmed sequences of contingencies in the hands of skillful teachers and counselors can lead to complex repertoires demanded by a social environment, writes Skinner. 
The implications of Skinner's ideas for the modern classroom are profound. They explain much of the behavior of teachers and provide a scientific foundation for their future progress. He saw more efficient teaching practices as extremely important, hoping that, his, that teaching could eventually become a science. Indeed, much educational theory in the last 50 years has shared Skinner's behaviorist conception of teaching, an advancement from the older method of mirroring the factory. <clears throat> it is not the rules or the enforcement of rules that is most important. It is the habitual following of those rules that helps the individual internalize desired patterns of behavior. The focus shifts from more obvious forms of discipline to the use of techniques which encourage a self-discipline, which diminishes the need for those more obvious forms of discipline. <clears throat> Even early in the 19th century, Fiche saw this as ideal. The pupil of pure morality, a concept similar to what Jesuits might call being man for others, Fiche professed, quote, goes forth at the proper time as a fixed and unchangeable machine produced by this art, teaching, which indeed could not go otherwise than as it has been regulated by the art, and needs no help at all, but continues of itself according to its own law. This is the essential feature of modern schooling. Fichte called the ideal pedagogy an art, Skinner would call it a science, but the message remains the same. Even when the teaching of values is the professed goal of pedagogy, if modern techniques and methods of organization are employed, the approach, which Skinner might term mentalistic or not thoroughly focused on scientific analysis, has similar goals and effects upon the student as a purely behaviorist approach. During the 1950s, Benjamin Bloom and a team of specialists worked very hard to put together a book in two volumes called Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, the Classification of Educational Goals, which had a significant influence on government schools in America. It was designed as a tool to help educators classify the ways in which students are to respond to their lessons. Thanks to standardized testing, intelligence is the new idol that educational theory must bow to. The ideal student is a well-behaved and objectively intelligent automaton. The second volume deals with, quote, effective objectives. In other words, character development, attitude, values. Things that Bloom feels are not graded mainly due to the, quote, inadequacy of the appraisal techniques and the ease with which a student may exploit his ability to detect the responses which will be rewarded and the responses which will be penalized. Quote, in contrast, Bloom writes, it is assumed that the student who responds in a desirable way on a cognitive measure has indeed possessed the competence which is being settled. Due to this danger, educators must stress not just the outward conformity of socialization, but, quote, internalization, or the student's acquisition of values organized into a moral code used to regulate one's life. The book goes on to classify in a hierarchy the various responses to teaching that a teacher must bring about in the student, 
The peak of this internalization process is the student's, quote, characterization by a value or value complex. An example of this would be a student who has learned not to talk back. Such a student stays quiet and only speaks when the teacher allows. A less refined list of goals and functions of schooling was presented in the early 20th century by Alexander Inglis. In his book, Principles of Secondary Education, he lists the, quote, six important functions of secondary education. One, the adjustive or adaptive function. Two, the integrating function. Three, the differentiating function. Four, the propedeutic function, that is, training the future guardians of the system. Five, the selective function. And six, the diagnostic and directive function. Not necessarily in that order. So basically, students must be adjusted so that they behave, integrated into the social group, tested, sorted, classified, trained, etc. It would be difficult to better describe the function of schooling. Inglis sees the school for what it is, quote, a social institution or agency maintained by society for the purpose of assisting in the maintenance of its own stability and in the direction of its own progress. In this sense, it is clear that it is society and the network of control that covers it that must that covers it that must be destroyed. It is hardly radical to substitute the existing society for another one, which will serve the same functions in many ways. In many ways, Marx's theory of alienation explains the student's situation as well as the worker's. Does not the knowledge that the student works to accumulate confront him, quote, as something alien, as a power independent of the producer? And to use Marx's words for the student, one could say that the student only feels herself outside her schoolwork and in her schoolwork feels outside herself. Life itself becomes a means to life, or, as the situationists feel, life has been reduced to mere survival. School is undoubtedly an institution that initiates students into a life alienated living. In school, the student learns that learning requires its usually authoritarian counterpart, teaching. Once the young learn dependence, the other lessons come much easier. It is not knowledge treated as a commodity and as such fetishized by the consumers slash producers. It begins to acquire all the metaphysical power that modern man attaches to facts. All knowledge become inter- becomes interchangeable and divorced from social context, and units of knowledge are to be accumulated having practical application only within the specialized world of academia. The detached objectivity of the scholar is idealized. As Raoul Vanagam wrote, Knowledge is inseparable from the use that it is made of it. And academic knowledge, in this sense, knowledge that is not used against the interests of power, can only serve to enlarge and consolidate power. Quote, 
What makes power comes good, said Foucault. What makes it accepted is simply the fact that it only doesn't only weigh on us as a force which says no, but that it traverses and produces things. It induces pleasure, forms knowledge, produces discourse. It needs to be considered as a productive network which runs through the whole social body, much more than as a negative instance whose function is repression. In the era of fragmentary power, when all can share in its ability to compensate for the poverty of our everyday lives, the world of schooling reinforces power by managing and allocating knowledge, possibly power's greatest tool. When Marx mentioned schools, he merely said that, quote, government and church should rather be equally excluded from any influence on the school. <clears throat> the pristine school. Divorced from its social context, the school can look like a rather positive thing. But as long as there are governments and churches, they are going to have something to do with schooling. Schooling has a long history of pseudo-opposition from libertarians. Tolstoy, Ferrer, and Fier did not critique schools as such, but called for different educational practices. In Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Freire even talks of the pedagogy of the revolutionary leadership, tipping his hat to authoritarians such as Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. Revolutionary educational practices, if they are not based on a fixed ideology to which the masses are to be converted, cannot have anything to do with schooling or schools. Schools are institutions, and all institutions have a certain degree of permanence that can extend beyond the control of their initiators. They are not associations developed for a specific limited purpose, and they are not self-organized. Institutions perpetuate themselves because people organize each other's living activity through them, not living for themselves. In order for educational practices to have a subversive character, they must not aim to fit themselves into the dominant society as an alternative to what is already offered. They must be a part of a community actively seeking to undermine the dominant social order. The Ateneos, or storefront cultural centers of Spain in pre-Civil War times, which had classes for those who wanted to learn to read and write, provide a simple example. But Spanish anarchists did not try to build an alternate society, but rather a counter-society. Some conception of the difference between the two is essential. In order to destroy capitalism and the state apparatus, we cannot simply build new institutions and expect the old ones to fall apart. Only through attacking the old institutions and organizing ourselves in a decentralized manner can we function outside the realm of capitalism and attack it as a social system. Capitalist social relations must be actively subverted. We cannot simply form cooperative or collective exchange relationships which reproduce capitalist logic. The Soviet Union, for example, was never communist in any real sense. It could best be described as state capitalist. Max Stirner, a poor German school teacher 
was one of the most radical thinkers of the 19th century. In The False Principle of Our Education, Stirner criticized popular theories of schooling of his time. Quote, only a formal and material training is being aimed at, and only scholars come out of the menageries of the humanists, and only sin useful citizens out of those of the realists. Both of them are indeed nothing but subservient people. Sterner saw the ideas and knowledge acquired in schooling as being detached from the person who supposedly learns such things. Sterner criticized all abstractions which are held above people's own wills and desires. In an authoritarian society, such abstractions or ideologies seem to govern our actions to the extent that people merely accept the idea that they should serve such things, such wheels in the head. Clearly, schooling, which subordinates the individual to the social group, utilizes such abstractions in the socialization process. In criticizing the institutionalization of the socialization process that was taking place in his time, Stirner criticized authority. The crux of the matter around which all socialization revolves. A more in-depth critique of schooling in particular came from Ivan Illich in De Schooling Society, De Schooling Society, published in 1970. Illich was opposed to the school as an institution and formed a co cogent critique of its functions. Schools divide social reality. Quote, education becomes unworldly and the world becomes non-educational. Illich saw a childhood as a product of industrial society in a social category that perpetuates the authority of the school teacher. Quote, Once young people have allowed their imaginations to be formed by curricular instruction, they are conditioned to institutional planning of every sort. Instruction smothers the horizon of their imaginations. They cannot be betrayed, but only short-changed because they have been taught to substitute expectations for hope. His criticisms of schooling are manifestly evident and entirely valid. Quote, the school system today performs the threefold function common to powerful churches throughout history. It is simultaneously the repository of society's myth, the institutionalization of that myth's contradictions, and the locus of the ritual which reproduces and veils the disparities between myth and reality. The themes inherent in theories of schooling have been rehashed for centuries. It is all too easy to see the devastating effects of schooling in our everyday lives. People have lost their imaginations, and others must determine the meaning of our lives. Students are taught to recognize that they are constantly under surveillance. Rooms are distributed along a corridor at regular intervals. The teacher stands in front of the class, making sure that everyone displays acquiescence in receiving the lesson. Later, the students are examined, tested, observed, and controlled. The examination, quote, manifests the subjugation of those who are perceived as objects and the objectification of those who are subjected the superimposition of the power relations and knowledge relations 
assumes in the examination all its visible brilliance. We must be made dependent, even helpless, memorizing bits of knowledge without any need. All sorts of ind industries would collapse, John Taylor Gatto observed, quote, Unless a guaranteed supply of helpless people continue to pour out of our schools each year. Capital must dominate the future not just through the production of new commodity things and technologies, but through the production of commodity people. Every individual is merely a component, a piece of machinery. This is the essence of modern schooling. To argue otherwise would be mundane, untrue, and utterly academic.